three woos. Man, glad you guys took some margin and time out of your uh, Christmas season to do what I think would be normal, and that is prioritize reminding ourselves of this story that changed the world. I know that a lot of people do a lot of things around the Christmas season, but as believers, I think it's important for us to remember the Christmas story and to look to it as a reason for hope, no matter what our story looks like right now. Uh, coming up on Friday and Saturday, I can't wait to talk to you about uh, the Christmas story in greater detail and depth. My plan is to break open the book of Isaiah and look at a 900-year-old detailed prophecy that talked about the coming of the Messiah and the way in which he would come, the life that he would live, the kingdom he would establish, and how that is a part of why we are seeing the change that we are seeing today. But not to preach Friday's sermon on a Sunday, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. We've been looking at a family uh, that struggles to be functional. Uh, they, in many ways, are dysfunctional. There's favoritism, there's pride, there's uh, marriages that need CPR. There is just a lot that has gone wrong. In fact, I would submit to you that in this family's story, uh, the theory, if it can break or go wrong, it will, has been proven true to this point in time. Uh, if you have been keeping score and track with us, we started all the way back several weeks ago in Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis chapter 25, we're introduced to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac has a big heritage that he comes from, a family name that he's trying to live up to. His father was a man named Abraham. And on Isaac carried a promise that God was going to multiply uh, through Abraham this line, this lineage that would be as many as the stars of the sky, that God would be with them, that he would bless them, and that through them the entire earth would be blessed. But his wife, Rebekah, couldn't have a child. And for 20 years, Isaac prayed for Rebekah in her barrenness, being tenderhearted in the waiting, compassionate in petitioning for someone other than himself, and after 20 years, they find out they're going to have a child, or so they thought. There were actually two children within Rebecca's womb. A violent war was going on in the womb because a violent war would happen outside of the womb as well. Two nations were inside of her. Esau the eldest, Jacob the youngest, who would be two nations. Now we need to understand that Jacob wasn't better than Esau. He was flawed and broken. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, chose to do through Jacob something that Jacob didn't deserve to have done through him. If you have a story, if you have a calling, if God is, has been at work in your life, let me be very clear with you. You didn't earn it. God's grace gave it. There's no room in the room for prideful people that think they have earned the favor of God on their life. That is, in essence, anti-gospel and anti-Christian. None of you have gotten what you deserve. That's why you're not in hell and you're here today. You may think that you're living in a living hell, but let me convince you with great conviction of the entirety of the word of God. You are far from what you deserve, and you are better off than you deserve to be because of the ongoing gracious hand of God that continues to give you what you have not merited and earned, but undeservingly lavishes upon you his grace and his mercy. Oh, someone help me preach this a little bit. Genesis chapter 25. So after nearly 20 years of waiting, we get two children that are born. Rebecca's arms are full. But by the end of chapter 25, we've already got a broken family on their way to a demise because we've got a parent that's picked favorites and conditioned their love to their favorite child. Meaning they've communicated to the non-favorite, <clears throat> you've got to earn my love. 
which is how you break up your family. You see, God's love is covenantal, meaning we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, he gives it to us anyway. But what we experience in this world is a love that's transactional. When it is earned, you get praised. When it is uh, uh, something you've done because of your good works, we respond by giving you good things in your life. And it teaches us to think counter to the very gospel and the nature of God's love for us, which is to give us a covenantal love that's not dependent upon our performance in order for it to be extended to us. So that's good. Okay, so in the chapter, we've got a divided family. We've got favorite kids in chapter 25. You go over to chapter 26. Isaac deceives a man named Abimelech, who's the king of the Philistines. That's kind of a big country and a big deal because later there would come a runt king that would be born in this little town of Bethlehem and he would face a giant that was a Philistine. So Abimelech, hundreds of years before that whole story happens, uh, he and uh, Isaac have this weird rivalry. They fill in his wells because he prospers because God's blessing him. His crops yield a hundred more than anybody else's crops are yielding. They see Rebecca and they're like, Rebecca, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. And Isaac... Some of y'all know that song. Isaac, some of y'all need to listen to good music. Uh, Isaac, staying on point, Isaac uh, is more afraid of his well-being than his wife's well-being, so he tells them that it's his sister, which is just like what his father did with Sarah whenever they were in Egypt. You see, the way you live, the way that you parent, the things you do, not the things you say, but the things you do, they give a model for the next generation that comes after you. If you don't like the way the next generation, the way the next generation looks, it's likely because you've not looked in the mirror lately to deal with what's going on in your own generation and what you've created by your own actions. So he lies about his wife, Rebecca, passing her off as a sister for fear of his health and more concerned for his well-being than hers. So their marriage was obviously going great. Esau marries at the end of chapter 26 two Hittite women, and they decide that it's going to be their business to inflict pain and punishment on Isaac and Rebekah. So every day they make misery their business, literally, and the family's going well. Some of you are like, this just sounds like last year with what we did with our family. By chapter 27, near death, Isaac calls for Esau and tells him to prepare a meal for him so that he can give him his blessing as the firstborn son. That at the end of chapter 25 or 26, he sold for a bowl of porridge. Rebecca, overhearing this, decides that she's going to deceive her husband and take the blessing of the firstborn Esau and give it to her son Jacob. But so that we don't create any identity issues, she dresses him up in Esau's clothes, puts fur on his body, and gets him close enough to Isaac that he smells like Esau, sounds like Jacob, but deceives him because Isaac can't tell the difference. Esau returns and is completely fine with this. Again, a joke. Instead, he wants to murder his brother. We're about to have Cain and Abel part two take place because of the deception of a mother who has chosen one favorite son over the other. So in the middle of the night, she goes to her husband and convinces him that, he, that Jacob needs to go to her brother Laban so that he can find a wife. And it's under the disguise of him needing to marry a bride who was not a foreigner that she slides him out the back door so that his life would be spared. Whereas Esau, the professional hunter, is on the prowl and salivating at the opportunity to take vengeance instead of extend forgiveness, which is another way to wreck your family. This series has been filled with the how-to on getting to rock bottom, and we didn't get here overnight. Many of you read headlines of celebrities. You read headlines of people whose entire life, ministry, family gets blown up, and you're like, how did that happen? What you need to know is there are chapters. 
that led down a road of decisions that were being made that got to a destination called rock bottom and dead end. And you're just getting cued in on it. You see, you know very little about the majority of the people's story that's going on around you. And the headlines cannot give you the depth of detail on the decisions that took them down the path to the destination that they have arrived to. You see, at the end of the day, many of you right now are not thinking your decisions matter. You're not taking responsibility for your decisions. As a result of it, it's everybody else's fault and you're always the victim. But what you need to know is that the decisions of the schemer named Jacob have gotten to the rock bottom moment of Genesis chapter 28 and it's nobody else's fault but his own. He can look at his mama and he can look at his daddy and he can blame his brother, but at the end of the day, he is added to the deception and the brokenness of his family and he is culpable and responsible for his part in this broken story. So today I've entitled this message as we get to Genesis chapter 28, finally, the collapse of a family. It didn't happen overnight, it came subtly over time, but we finally come to the collapse of this family. Genesis 28 verse 10 picks up the story. It says, meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and he stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that would become a Led Zeppelin song. That's not in there. That's a joke. He, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going down and up, this, up and down the stairway. Verse 13, at the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, if we've been reading this story long at the beginning of Genesis, this language should trigger, oh, there's something big going on here, because this was the same thing that the Lord, when he encountered Abraham, said to him. And it's the same thing whenever they were in the midst of barrenness, Isaac, his father, heard from the Lord. The same promise now that's being heard now to Jacob. It's a continuation of God's ongoing work throughout generations, not just throughout one person's story. He goes on to say this, they will spread out, this numerous uh, inheritance of people that I give you will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east, the north and the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you. Okay. Jacob is laying on a rock to sleep. He has none of the comforts of his family None of the comforts of his home. He's at a literal rock bottom. How do you know you're there? Well, if you've moved from, uh, who's the guy that sells pillows on TV? My pillow. And now your bed is a granite rock. Or some other form of rock. It's the only kind of rock that went to my mind, okay? You may be at rock bottom. If you're literally laying on the rocks for sleep. Now here's the thing. For the majority of us, when we've hit rock bottom in our life, we have thought in our minds and to ourselves, God could never be further from us than we are right now. And perhaps the place we least expected to hear from God, to find God, would be at rock bottom. This is kind of counter to the way that we think. Now many of you are like, 
Well, yeah, yeah, I know the stories of the Bible, but most of us don't apply them to the wisdom when we feel alone at our own rock bottoms. See, most of us sit there and we think, oh, this is the uh, uh, exception to the rule that God may have been with Jacob, that God may have been with David when he had slept with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, and maybe he was there in that mess at rock bottom. Maybe he's with Jacob at the end of his path of deception, but he's not here with me. He's not near to me. That's not my story. I'm not a big enough deal. I'm not uh, a difference maker. I'm not changing the world. How could God or why would God care for someone like me? And what we need to be reminded of is the consistent truths of the Bible whenever the consistent things we see seem to contradict it. Uh, Last I checked, God cares about everything he has created. There's not a sparrow that falls from the sky that he doesn't account for and know. And if birds falling from the sky are not done outside of the watchful eye of a sovereign Savior that loves all of his creation, then how much more valuable would be what the text would say are you? He's numbered the very number of hairs on your head. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He's numbered your steps. Before you even breathe or took the first day in, he knew every day that you would breathe and take in. So why are you so riddled with worry over the idea that God has somehow lost sight of you when he's not lost sight of the bird. Hmm. See, it's often at rock bottom that our attention finally turns to God. In fact, I've begun to learn that sometimes the greatest gift God gives us is he allows rock bottoms of this side of eternity to hit us. See, rock rock bottom is when you've run out of options. You don't have a lot of options to look at. You've got maybe one, and you may not even like the one you have. That's a rock bottom moment. It's a moment where when you look into the future, it looks more like a nightmare than a dream. Jacob's not going to bed that night thinking, oh, my dreams are going to be pleasant and my future's going to be great. He's probably going to bed that night thinking, my entire family is messed up. I've never even met my uncle that I'm going to visit, and now I've got to go on this journey to hide from a brother who wants to kill me, and I don't know if it'll ever be right again. In his mind, he's probably at the point where he's thinking, if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it's the train coming through to finish me, not a light of hope that's leading me to the other side. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a moment where you were for sin or for other people's sin or for life breaking down for various reasons because you're more prone to have, according to Dave Ramsey, a negative financial event over the next few years than a positive financial event? So in this world, things break, things go wrong, they don't go right. Have you ever been in a moment where you got there and your options were so limited that you didn't like the one or two that you had and your future was so bleak that you didn't want to dream about it? You know what you do whenever you get to that moment and you look into the future and it's not hopeful and you don't want to dream? We're really good at it. And this is how I know most of you have been a rock bottom moment. You ready? You look into your past and you glamorize where you were. It gets way better than it ever was. They become the good old days. All because you don't know how to cope with your life not panning out the way that you had thought. It's a rock bottom moment for Jacob. He's deceived his father. He's being hated and hunted by his older brother. And he has now seen his mother for the last time because when he returns to the land that God is calling him to return to and he has a moment of uh, restoration with Esau, his mother will be dead and already in the family tomb. 
This is not an easy moment in his life. His future is bleak. His options are non-existent. But there is a beautiful gift that comes at rock bottom. For the first time, Jacob's out of things to deceive. He's out of schemes to scheme. <laughs> you see, th- this is what God does with some of us. Many of you in your self-sufficiency think that you don't need God, that at least that much. So you take the gifts that God gave you with the air that God allows you to breathe, with the heart that he tells to beat, and you set off to build yourself an empire and a kingdom that will satisfy your soul and give you a gift that in your mind will make you worthy to come before God. Sometimes the wrath of God is he says, go for it, thunder. And he lets you have it. So you build your kingdom, you stack it high, you get stuff and possess, and you become great in the eyes of people that are around you. And what ends up happening? And many of us don't believe it because we still think that we'll find a different outcome at the end of our own self-sufficiency in the road that we are paving. What comes out of millionaire after millionaire that I sit down with who doesn't know why everything's broke within them is this question of why their soul is still not satisfied. See, it doesn't have to always break down like Jacob's family for you to hit rock bottom. Sometimes it's at the top when you have everything that you need and everything you ever dreamed and everything you ever wanted that you hit rock bottom nonetheless. Deion Sanders, primetime, he talks about the day he won the Super Bowl as being the most miserable day of his existence because he no longer had an aim or a goal for his life. The first time I've hit rock bottom, best of my calculations, three times in my life. That became monument moments building forward. The first time I hit rock bottom, I was a collegiate athlete at Anderson University. I played JV basketball, which was kind of like the C team of the varsity team at Anderson. We were the prospect squad. We would go play junior colleges, get beat up on. And then if we were good enough, then we would potentially rise to getting to play on the big squad. Or let's be honest, watch the big squad play while we helped them practice and wiped up the water after the timeouts. So I had never been a starter in anything in basketball, but here I am on the JV squad, and I finally get to a point where I've got a great girlfriend, not my wife that I'm currently with now, and will hopefully, by God's grace, be with forever. I don't know why I put a current on that. I mean, that's just kind of weird, but (laughs) awkward turtle. Let's work through it. Um, (laughs) I have a a girlfriend that I think is great. I have uh, now the opportunity to start on this team and I make score more baskets than I ever thought that I would score. I might get to move moved up to varsity at some point in time if I can gain some weight. Uh, it, everything I've ever wanted seems to be within my grasp. Everything's going great and I'm miserable and I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. I don't know why. I get a summer internship taping ankles with the Milwaukee Bucks in the summer league in Las Vegas at 19, 20 years of age. What could go wrong? seemed like a bright future. It was my plan. It was everything I ever wanted to do. I was either going to be a basketball player or I was going to take the ankles of those who play basketball and make a lot of money while I did it. What became my companion wasn't success and it wasn't satisfaction and it wasn't peace. It starts to become misery and I'm trying to figure out why they're showing up. Why is this knocking on my door when everything else seems to be so Good. It got so dark and so bleak that once the girlfriend broke up with me and once my position on the team shifted a little bit, my thought was the only way forward was through an accelerator of a Ford Explorer driving it straight into some end 
so that I didn't have to live in this existence that wasn't what I wanted to be anymore. And we don't talk about suicide a lot in church because we don't like to talk about things that don't make you want to come and fill seats, but I don't care. So um, just this week, someone who had everything they ever thought that they would want, a beautiful family and kids and a future, they took their own life, and everyone's shocked and trying to figure out why. Well, the Bible's pretty clear about why this continues to happen in our society, and that is there is no rest and no peace apart from the very presence of God. And what your soul tries to buy and find in success and platitudes can only be found in the presence of God. There is no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. And for many of you, you've tried to buy your peace in relationships and success and stuff, and you've never found it and figured it out. And many, tragically, don't do so until it's too late. I never will forget pushing the accelerator of that Ford Explorer. It had been raining all day. I was on a backwood in Anderson, and I was meaning to end my life. I do not recommend that anyone test God, that anyone put God in a position. My intent was not to test him. My intent was to get away from him. There was this sneaky suspicion that grandma's faith and my parents' faith was the right thing all along, and I was too prideful to admit or want to come to Jesus. So in my last act of defiance, I thought I would take what I could control and end it on my own. 70, 80, 90 miles an hour on a back road in Anderson, raining all day. To my left, there was a ditch. To my right, there was a river. Got to 90, 95 miles an hour, and as it crested the hill, there was a big puddle of water in my uh, Ford Explorer hydroplane. It had two directions it could go. When you hydroplane, you don't control which direction the car will go. To my left, there was a small ditch. To my right, there was a ravine that went down into the river. The car on the left side caught the ditch, spun out in a full 360 without the Explorer turning over. And this is a 1990s Explorer, so you know that's a modern miracle. The car comes to and settles down. It was rock bottom. I came to out of that dark moment trying to figure out what in the heck I just did and how I got here. It was a moment where I knew I never wanted to be here. I didn't know how I'd gotten here, and I was scared. And I never will forget the moment after that first moment as the car settled in the roadway, punching the steering wheel, angry at myself, and then broken that I let myself get to this point of sensing the presence of God at rock bottom in a place that I never thought he would be. God was at church whenever I got it together, but not in the car when it was all falling apart. God, God was at home with the parents that loved the Lord and were praying for me, but not in the car with the guy that was literally shaking his fist at God and wanting nothing to do with him. See, this is the part about God that I love. He knows no boundaries. His sovereignty and his authority know no end. He is Alpha and Omega. He is in every season of life and every moment of life. He is truly Emmanuel, which means he is with us. And when you've gone farther than you think you could go and you've done things that you never dreamed that you would do, I want to submit to you that there is a God that is near and he loves you and he desires to intervene. And sometimes it's at rock bottom that your ears open up and you can finally hear. See, Jacob's there. He doesn't have a bright future. He doesn't have big plans. He doesn't have someone to deceive yet. <laughs> he definitely goes back to being a schemer in chapter 29. But my, my point is he's at a rock bottom. And what happens is he finds God there. God says, what's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I'll bring you back. 
not going to be you, Jacob, not going to be your sufficiency. I'll bring you back, and I will not leave you until I finish giving you everything that I have promised you. Jacob woke up at rock bottom from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. I lay down thinking that I was far from God, but I'm waking to the reality that I was close to God. I thought that my life was over, that my future was ending, but what I found at my end was a God who was ready to begin in my story. What we have is a man that went to bed in loneliness thinking he was away from the presence of God, who wakes up thanking God for his rock bottom. When was the last time? You were at your end, and you were eclipsed with praise for the God who met you at your rock bottom. I remember 18 months ago, the second time I remember hitting, uh, actually the third time I remember hitting rock bottom in my life. Different detail, different story. Always guided with these two principles. I don't need God as much as I think that I need Him. And in my pride, I am something apart from the value that God says I am in what I do and in what I achieve. Every time I hit rock bottom, it has been fueled by these two thoughts. I am self-sufficient, and I am what I achieve and what I do. Both have led me back down the path to rock bottom over and over again. I was a pastor of a church that had multiple campuses. At one point in time in its peak, 13, 1,400 people a weekend coming, preaching uh, three and four services a weekend at this church in California. Uh, things were going great. I was a radio DJ at the same time, had 25,000 people that listened to the morning show in Bakersfield, California. We were competing with country music for the top morning show in Kern County, the home of Buck Owens and Merle Haggard. Take it, Buck. We had just come out of an eight-month revival, 450 people making professions of faith and being baptized. The church filling the Fox, historic downtown Fox Theater to the gill with people coming to hear the gospel. We took a single mother who had been going through a very difficult time in her life and had taken two more kids in of her sister that she couldn't take care of, and we had driven a car out for them, packed it full of presents with Christmas, and handed her the keys and paid her mortgage for the next eight months on Christmas service at the Fox Theater. What could go wrong? My son rolls over, 2018, looks me in the eye. It's 5.15 in the morning. I'm up and at him on a Monday morning, going back to do the radio show, back right into work, get home sometime around 5.30 or 6 o'clock, have about 30 minutes to 45 minutes of time that I can give attention to the kids, and then I'm probably back to something else relating to the church. And he rolls over at 5.15 in the middle of me not thinking I was at a rock bottom moment. I immediately crashed down by the words of a four-year-old when he at 5.15 said, Bye, Dad. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Everything that I thought was right, immediately I knew was wrong. I went in panicked, finished the radio show, uh, New changes needed to be made, but was afraid to make any of them because I was more, more afraid of letting down people than God. So we worked, and we worked, and we worked, and I tried to make it work out. And when it didn't work out, I just started cutting things, but I didn't want to overhaul kind of change. So I cut out the radio. But I kept going at an unbearable pace with the church, and I kept working and trying to make it work, and it wouldn't work because people would not just do what I told them to do, which is how you know you become a control freak, and you're not healthy. 
So then a global pandemic breaks out. You heard of it? So you're like, ah, I wasn't that bad of a pandemic. Ah, how many of you know someone that died in it? Well, the government killed them. I don't care how they got killed, but they died, okay? Like that, we'll leave your theory for another discussion on Fox News later. But my, my point is, it changed the way we live. Uh, and in California, they didn't take 10 minutes off. They took about 10 months. 350 people left our church and moved to another state during that time. Whenever your entire identity is backed in your achievements, and they begin to move, you're on the path to rock bottom. We tried to wait it out, figure it out. It wasn't working out. And I kept trying to overhaul it, kept trying to work it. And in the middle of all of my failure, I felt like the most meaningless, worthless, terrible, neglectful human being that you could ever imagine. In 2018, we had taken a break, and I told my wife, if we ever get back to that feeling again of life being out of control because we weren't managing and stewarded it well, we would uproot and figure out what God would have us to do. We would take that as a clear sign that God was saying, you've done what we've asked you to do here, time to move on and go somewhere else. Well, we got on the airplane to go back in 2021 to California, and I'm supposed to roll out five years of vision, and I've got nothing of where we're going and what God would have us do. So I go into a room of elders and I resign instead of give them the next steps, not knowing where we're going to go or what we're going to do. I then am on the sideline. I don't know if I'm going to preach. And let me just be clear. When you're called to preach, there's a fire in your bones and preachers are going to preach. It's what we do. So like before I had a pulpit, I would preach like to trees and to squirrels. I think the first convert was a possum. I'm not making that up. Like I, Anyway, it was a joke. Some of you didn't like it. My, my point is you preach. It's just part of what you do. And the idea of not getting to preach the word of God all of a sudden moved from being a burden of something that I didn't want to do to something that I was missing. You ever been there? Because when you're at rock bottom and you're spent, the blessings of God become burdens. So God put me on the bench. Not because he was vengeful, but because he was a caring father. And I look back at that rock bottom moment, and I know I'm a better Christian because God let me hit it. I'm a, better, I'm a better husband because I hit it. I'm a better father because I hit it. And I know right now I'm a better pastor than I've ever been. I cherish the word of God, and I cherish the people of God. You're not my achievements. You're not where I get my identity and my self-worth, and that's good, because that means I can give you love that you don't earn in merit, because some of y'all are awful some of the time. When's the last time you stopped and thought about the grace of God meeting you at your rock bottom? See, sometimes it's there at the end of yourself that you can finally hear the voice of God in your life. So he awakes with praise in verse 16. And then secondly, he awakes with fear. Because when you meet God, when you encounter God, there always is a reverent fear that comes with it. Verse 17, he goes on and says this. Look at it with me. One more. Hey, but he was also afraid. So he was thinking, God, I didn't know you were here. But he was also afraid, and he said, what an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. Okay, really quick, here's what he says. I'm afraid, which is not terror fear. 
It's reverent fear. What's reverent fear? Reverent fear is the tension of knowing this is awesome and it could kill me. How many of you have ever had a moment in your life where you were like, <gasps> and you're like, that's awesome. All right, I, I hiked Half Dome with my groomsmen uh, before our wedding. A lot of guys that were at our wedding, not all my groomsmen were there. And the last like chunk of Half Dome, it's in Yosemite National Forest, is like a free climb up the side of a mountain where people have died. Usually trying to take selfies of themselves. Like, don't be that person. Every year, people go to the national uh, parks and they die because they're wanting to get a selfie of them at the Grand Canyon. No one cares. We, we get that you're living your best life. We're, we don't care. Like, we don't care. Like, we act like we do because we love you. We, we really don't care. I don't need to see a picture. Ah! Like, I don't care. I don't care that you're eating a steak. I don't need to. I, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. In fact, most of the time, it's just concern. I'm concerned how... how you're eating that steak when you were last week asking for money because you were struggling. Like, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. <laughs> Never mind. It, 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 my... <laughs> Just getting into some stuff. Afraid. It, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome, yet I don't deserve it. I, I, I don't belong here. That's what the top of Half Dome was for me and my friends. It was that moment of recognizing one gust of wind and we're done, but the majesty of the creation and ultimately what it would point to of the creator behind this creation speaks to a God that is worthy of all. Some of y'all just have an all problem. You're in all of your football team, but not in all of the creator of the universe. You're, you're in awe of your bank account, but you're not in awe of the creator of the universe. You're in awe of your house, you're in awe of your plan, but not in awe of the creator of the universe. And at the end of the day, that's what we call misplaced awe, which leads to a broken and misplaced identity and life. You see, there's this fear that comes over Jacob. What an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God, which is called Bethel, the very gateway to heaven. He recognizes he's in a holy moment. He recognizes that God is closer than he's comfortable with or that he expected him to be. So what does he do? He makes a monument and he makes a commitment. He makes a monument because you're prone to forget what God has done. He makes a commitment because he doesn't want the encounter with God to go to waste. See, in your rock bottom moments when God eclipses you with hope and with a future that you don't deserve, that you have not earned, I think there is a good practice of making mental monuments that remind you of a need for a desperate, dependent commitment to God. If you look at the text, it goes on to say this in verse uh, 18, the next morning Jacob got up very early, he took a stone that he had rested his head against. I want you to get this, his rock bottom becomes a marker of the faithfulness of God. That, I cannot think of a better way to use rock bottom. This was what I slept on at my worst moment in life, but now it is a reminder of God's faithfulness in all seasons of my life. It's the weaponization of rock bottom for the glory of God. So he takes it and he makes a monument, verse 18, that he has set his head against it. He set it upright as memorial pillar, and then he poured olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. Then, after making that monument, Jacob made this vow. 
So there's a monument. Why? Because you're prone to forget. Now let me give you just some quick history. This happens all throughout the Bible. The people of God go through the water. A few chapters later and a few books over that God has called them to, that he parts from them for the second time. The priest holding the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the water. The water's being parted. They're going through on dry land. It's to remind them in that moment of the dry land they walked through 40 years prior when God parted and brought them out of slavery when they were not a people. And in it, they're to take a stone as the waters are parted, and they're to build a monument by that river so that when the next generation came up and they're like, what's that about? They would look at it and say, we weren't perfect, we weren't faithful, we weren't always right, but God was with us. And God was faithful, and God was able, and he led us and sustained us through a desert and a wilderness when there was no food on the table. He rained down food and provided for us in supernatural ways when there were not any natural means for us to get through and get by. And we are setting that monument up so that you know that God is worthy of your trust. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, he's worthy of your attention. No matter what you think of your life and its potential and your skills and your abilities, he's worthy of your trust and your surrender so that he can live and do through you what you cannot do through yourself. They were to set it up and they were to remind the next generation about it and they were to remind themselves in the process of doing it. When's the last time you took your rock bottom, Thank God for it and made it a monument to the glory of God so that whenever you're prone to forget in the current season that God would be with you, that God would continue to work in spite of you, that there's no weapon formed against you that will prosper whenever God is at work in you, that what the enemy means for good, God turns for his glory and our ultimate good. Like, like when you are in that moment, what do you need? Well, you need the spirit of God, which you have, but sometimes you can't sense, and sometimes you need a monument that reminds you of the last time you thought God was distant. The last time that you were tempted to think that God wasn't able so that you can remember, man, I didn't think he was here then. I didn't think we'd be there now. But God was with me here, how much more so? In spite of what I feel, in spite of what I think, is he still with me now? And then he makes a vow. What's his vow? Look at it with me. Verse 20. If God will indeed be with me, and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place of worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. What is he saying? I have nothing, but if God gives me something, I will spend the rest of my life honoring him with it. I have a friend, and he was at his rock bottom several years back. His wife and he, whenever I met him, had divorce papers pulled and already on the nightstand in the bedroom. Partially filled out, more than likely doing what a lot of you do around the holidays. We give it one more go, and if it doesn't get fixed, then we part ways in the new year. Divorce lawyers know that January is the busiest time of year because Christmas can't fix broken marriages that many of us have so we felt a pull to love them sacrificially to invite them into our life I was there the day the BMW got towed out of their parking lot because they couldn't make the payments on it anymore I was there the day whenever they had no groceries and no food and no options and were embarrassed to reach out to anybody to help them out we broke bread became community became friends we walk through rock bottom. The papers got shredded. Hope began to get restored. Things got simple, which is what happens for a lot of us at rock bottom. 
what really mattered began to really matter to them. And they began a process of becoming a new creation, of becoming whole. We could see the fruit in their marriage and their kids were benefiting from the fruit of it in their lives. Slowly and surely, economically, they began to recover. Financially, they began to do really good again. He entrepreneured a business. It became a multi-million dollar business. They moved from a 1,300 square foot house up to a much larger, much more expensive home. I never will forget one of the last conversations he and I had was in the U-Haul that we had loaded up with stuff from the old rental house that was going into the house that made it look like they had nothing. And he looked at me and he said, I never will forget this, we've been so blessed financially. God has moved in our life, but I can't bring myself to honor God with what he's given me financially fully. You were expecting a warm and fuzzy story. No, we're human beings. We are prone to screw it up again. Here's a guy who had nothing three years later who's on the verge of becoming a millionaire who now is, who's struggling to add a zero to a check he couldn't even write three years ago. Who's slowly allowing himself to become consumed by his stuff again instead of being consumed by his Savior. Who's walking a path back to apathy and rock bottom again. What happened? Well, there's a reason we hadn't talked. Because I reminded him of his rock bottom. When he had nothing, he didn't have me, he had God. And where he had gotten to wasn't by his own sweat equity, but by the very hand of God that had interjected and intervened on his behalf, had restored a marriage that he had no ability to restore, had restored and given him a family that he had no business to have, had given him things to honor God with that he had no business to have received, yet he continued to be consumed by his stuff and not his God. So what's my, what was my prayer for him? Well, my prayer was that God would send him back to rock bottom, where what was right and what was good could be seen as right and good again. And that's my prayer for some of you. It's broken, you're trying to fix it. And my prayer is that God will let you play that fool's game of knowing you can't fix what only can be put in the hands of God. Your life can only be fixed in the hands of God. Your marriage can only be fixed in the hands of God. You're weak, you're not strong. You're not a hero, you're not capable, and you're not able. That's the beginning of the gospel. But the good news is, there is a God who moves mountains. There is a God who pardons sinners. There is a God who is deep and wide with mercy and love and grace and forgiveness. And He is Emmanuel. He is near to the brokenhearted. He hears the cry of the needy. And if you are broken and in need, He is available today. If you are in apathy and indifference, He is available today. He is the true treasure of the heart. He is the true need of every soul. And He is able in all seasons, whether it's a season of prospering or a season where your bed is on a rock because you don't have a pillow to put it on, of being able to do immeasurably more and beyond what you could ever dream to be a possibility for your life. But, but... It starts with surrender. It starts with surrender. You giving up and going, I can't fix it. I can't 
take it. I can't carry it anymore. So, you self-sufficient, prideful men, come to the altar and bend your knee. You who have everything but a white-hot relationship with God, you're lukewarm, on the fence, indifferent about the things that matter in eternity, bend your knee to the God who created it all, to the God who has a purpose for this time, though it is short with your life. Bend your knee. Be the leader in repentance. And then after, we're going to baptize. And for some of you, that's your next step. So go and get clothes on and get in this booth in just a minute. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do, our prayer team's here. The altar's open. You move. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, stand. Let's sing.